Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Glad and sincere hearts. Do you have glad and sincere hearts this morning? Enter into the community as you're parking your car, stepping out into the wild blizzard. Do you, do you feel that gladness? I'm about to enter into the place where my fellow believers meet to worship and pray, listen to the apostles' teaching. Do you come with glad and sincere hearts, or do you sometimes, like me, come into the parking lot and open your door and sort of prepare yourself for some negative things that might happen? Is this a place where you can be open, who you are freely with your teammates, or is it a place where you have to be hidden and careful, guarded and protective? This passage is intense, and it has so much bearing for our community, and it's, and it's a little bit hard for me as I, as I thought about how to preach this word to you this Sunday. It wasn't easy. This is a beautiful passage. It's a very, very challenging passage. There's that word in the first line, fellowship, koinonia. And it's later described in 44 as holding something in common. Holding something in common. That idea is very challenging to the way that we have all, not, I don't even think we've all sat down and said, here's how I'm going to live. It's just the way we've all been taught to live as good, productive American consumers. So this passage is very challenging to us at a, at a core level. It raises our first question this morning, the idea of fellowship. It raises our first question, and that is this. Is there a difference between having something in common with somebody and holding something in common with somebody? As you enter into a church community, are you primarily hoping that you will find people that you have something in common with? Or are you entering into the community devoting yourself or committing to something to be a certain kind of person, to hold something in common with those who are in the community? It's a complex question, I know. It's not easy to answer. But I think you can start to see having something in common is different than holding something in common. I want to look at Acts at this passage more closely. Mackenzie read the passage, and you might have already sensed that this is kind of a summary statement. So the summary statement is sort of a recapping of what Luke has already written for us. If you were to read through all of Acts, you would start to notice that Luke pieces his whole book together with short narratives, like the one we read the last two weeks, the picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out at Pentecost. So we see that picture. And then there will be a whole other story coming next, but in between are these small summary statements. They serve to both separate the different stories of Acts, but they also serve to hold the whole story together, if that makes sense. So these summary statements, and that's what we're reading today. This is one of Luke's famous summaries. Um, there's a couple things to know about it as we, as we think about what it is and what it isn't. So, 
Luke is writing the story from a, from a time that is later than what we're reading. He's sort of looking back on the early years of the church and recapping what happened, okay? And as he does, he's going to speak in generalizations. You might read this and say, wow, that is, that is a utopian ideal. <laughs> did they live in this kind of perfected love? And the truth is, no, they did not. Uh, we will see other summaries in the weeks to come that include death and mayhem and all kinds of sinfulness and so forth, which are part and parcel to church life. So today, we get a pretty good gleaming picture of an ideal sort of general sense of, of what's going on, okay? Another thing based on that, and this is the really important thing, because Luke is writing these later on, and he's looking back, choosing to highlight them, we can believe that they are pictures of what was typical, what was typically going on in the church. Not perfectly, but typically. It was generally happening this way. They continued to live this way. It had this general effect, all right? Does that make sense? So, so what we see in the gospel is Jesus planting a seed, and what we see here is what it looks like when that seed takes root. This is the typical way that a human being receives God's grace, believes the gospel, and then lives, okay? So it's a word picture. It helps us to get a glimpse of what it looked like. And it's really beautiful, but at the same time, as we read through this again, I would, I would ask you to very carefully say, Am I looking at an experience of life that's very familiar to me? Or am I looking at an experience of life that's very foreign to me? Okay? Jesus' ministry has ended. He's departed. During his ministry, he sowed the gospel seeds into people. He pours the Holy Spirit out. Think of that like water. The seeds now are going to germinate. The Johnny jump ups are going to bloom. You know, the, the daffodils are already rising. That's going to happen. So, this is the, the blooming, the germination of the seed. They're growing. Does it look familiar to you or does it look very foreign? Read this with me. Steve, could you put the slide up? Read this with me. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Sorry, you don't have to read it out loud with me. I just meant read it while I'm reading. <laughs> read along and think. <laughs> but I do like it when you read with me. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They're breaking bread. They're having meals. They're praying. Reverential awe came over everyone. That's the language of uh, phobos, which we get our word phobia or fear. But we, th we know in this context they're not terrified of God. They're just in awe. They're in awe of what's going on, and, and why not? There's wonders and miraculous signs that are happening because of the apostles. All who believed were together, togetherness, and they held everything in common. The language there is more verbal than we might have with the word had, and I'll explain this as we go on. All who believed were together and they held everything in common and they began selling their property and their possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anybody had need. 
And every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts. They're worshiping. And they're eating together. They're breaking bread from house to house. They're going to each other's homes. They're sharing their food with glad and humble hearts. There's a gladness, a happiness, and humility to what they're doing. And they're praising God. And they're having the goodwill of all the people. The the people around them are favorable toward this community. They say, wow, this this is a unique way to live. The Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. That's an important sentence and an idea and verb. They were entering into the community not because they got saved, they were being saved. There's an ongoing and passive feel to that verb. Somebody else is doing the saving, it's passive. But it's something that's ongoing in that participle way. Participle is your I-N-G word. They are being saved as they're in the community. I think it's a pretty beautiful picture. I think it seems a little too good to be true. My first reaction when I read that is this looks like a bunch of communism, quite frankly. (laughs) It looks like a bunch of hippy-dippy nonsense. You know, what are we talking about here? This is stupid. It makes no sense. I want to talk about that for a second because I think it weighs on a lot of us. This is not a call to communism. God has long ago established the notion of private property, and this is not an eradication of that good ideal. He gives us private property. I think you'll own private property in heaven. I think you'll think about it and use it a lot differently than we do here, though. Private property is a good thing. Communism is an answer or a challenge to inequality. The scriptures, so far as I read them, do not call for economic equality, the way that the gospel of this world teaches us. The gospel of this world teaches us that wealthy, to be wealthy in and of itself, is an evil thing, that the highest ideal is a total evened playing field, okay? Ask yourself this. What do people who are starving in poverty need the most? Do they need rich people to be less wealthy or do they need food? Do the poor suffer because they don't have enough? Or do they suffer because other people are rich? Your world will say those are one and the same, but I don't think that's fair. Consider economic equality, for example. Think about this ideal. This is very common in our world today. We hear this a lot, especially in some of our justice conversations. We say, boy, that would be great if nobody had more and nobody had less, everything was just the same. Ask yourself, why, why does that feel like a really good idea? I like that idea. I think all of us do to some degree. Why do we like that idea? Well, I think the reason we like it is not because of the idea itself, but because of what it produces. The idea is that if there aren't people who have more and less, then everybody will have something to eat, a shelter. They will have something clean to drink, good water. 
the economic equality ideal is not what we love the most, it's what we believe it will produce. And I'm going to suggest that that production, that making sure people have food and water and shelter and clothing, is something that can happen well outside of some sort of forced economic equality. That's the real value that we have. The gospel of Jesus says that all people will be cared for well if we choose to devote ourselves to one another and to hold something in common together. The gospel of the world says that all people will be cared for well if economic equality happens through law and regulation. Make new laws, force people to give up what they've earned, etc. I think we've seen for a long time how that actually plays out. The gospel call is to something more difficult and more beautiful. It's a call to say, though this is my property that I own, I yet bend my will and my heart to give to those who have less and to those who need. Okay? So, that's important. The gospel of the world teaches us to look at others and judge them. The gospel of Jesus teaches us to look at others and help them. And that's what the call is here. This is what you see happening in the, in the church. We know through the history of the church, even in the New Testament, that Paul and others will deal with house church leaders who are extremely wealthy. They own households and fields and vineyards and lands. But the gospel has in, impacted them in such a way that they see their possessions as given to them by God for the well-being of others, not just self-gratification. All who believed were together, and they held everything in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to those who had need. It's a crazy picture. It's a crazy picture. It's almost unintelligible for us. I think it, looks, it just looks... It looks like one of those old sort of, boy, that would be cool if it was still possible, but <laughs> you, know, you know how it is. We can't do that. Yet something in here, and I think it's the Spirit of God, is drawing us toward a different way of life. I think we need to listen to the Holy Spirit, and I'd like to actually pause for a second here in the middle and just pray with you. Because what's happening in this text, and I think what the Holy Spirit is doing in our church it's not something that just happens because we think about things really well. God is speaking to Central Bible Church as a community this morning and has been for some time. So I'd like you to just pray with me. Let's, let's actually hold in common this prayer together. God, we bow our heads this morning and we come to you. We ask that you would humble our hearts, blow through the caverns the caves, the caverns of our soul, Holy Spirit. Fill our imagination with fresh pictures of this kind of life. Help us to see how far we have strayed from your life and help us to return to you. Help us to believe Jesus' gospel so deeply, so truly that we live like this with one another, devoted to your church. Amen. May it be. Jesus says um, about his miracles, I know you guys think these are awesome, but I tell you what, when I leave, you're going to do even greater things than these. 
And sometimes I wonder, gosh, what's that going to be like? Will I be able to, you know, move Mount Hood over to the side someday and just have that kind of miraculous power? Sometimes I wonder if he's not winking at us and saying, you think it's awesome that I can walk on water? It is. That's pretty cool. You know what's even more awesome? A healthy community of Christians in this world. People will look at a healthy community of bonded, united, loving, co-laboring Christians, and it will have an impact on them that is as profound as a human being walking on water. And I think, I think it has more of an impact. Just think about it. Some dude walks across the lake, and everybody's stoked about it, and we have all the video clips and so forth. You can imagine how that impacts the world. Within 10 seconds, everybody claims it's manipulated digitally or whatever. Imagine a faithful community of believers in a part of the city that is constantly daily living in a way that is like this, totally bonded, holding together in common. It's a miracle. For a church to live according to Acts 2's principles for real is impossible if we're following the spirit of the world. It won't work. If we follow the Spirit of God, I think it can. The Spirit of the world tells us to find, your best shot is to walk around and try to best find the people that you have something in common with, all right? Let's just ratchet that out of the passage and think brass tacks about marriage for a second. People in happy and healthy marriages know that whatever they just so happened to have in common when they first met and were dating changed over time. Many times in the course of a relationship, you kind of end up saying, huh, <laughs> I did not expect that from this spouse of mine. I've, I didn't really plan. Wow, you learn new things. Values change. Hobbies change. All kinds of things change. But if your relationship is built on devotion, to one another, your promise to never break apart, to never break up, to always seek one another's shalom and well-being, you're certainly not free from suffering, but you suffer in a, in a brutal world together. You suffer through relational tensions. You suffer through the realities of the world together. And therefore, your suffering is not what, it doesn't cripple you, it doesn't destroy you, because you're in the fellowship of, a, of an unbreakable bond, and it's based not on what you happened to have in common, it's based on what you chose to do with one another, okay? If you just have your marriage or your relationship built on what we happen to have in common, when you start to suffer, you suffer in isolation because you haven't made the devotion or the commitment. If we as a church have built our community relationships solely upon what we already have in common, then we end up like that cantankerous old married couple who can't stand each other but loves to stay in the relationship just to heap abuse on each other. And if that has been your experience in the church of Jesus, I'm sorry, because it's common. How is it that this gospel could end up with communities who like to fight and bicker about one another? 
if we truly have devoted to hold the mission of God together in common. If we don't, we become a community that is always complaining about each other, bickering about what we don't like, backstabbing each other when we disagree, being stingy and selfish with money, fighting about money. But our community would begin to thrive in ways that we could not possibly imagine. We have yet to imagine if we devoted ourselves to one another here in this room, each of us. This specific local body of believers, the men and women and children sitting here in your midst, even deeper, it would signal that we have truly believed the gospel that Jesus came to give us. I'd ask this, has anybody in this room recently attempted to enter into a new community? All right. That's a trick question. It's like, it's like a joke. That's like asking you if you're sitting here right now. There's probably three categories of human beings in this room right now. One, one is you're here, you're visiting, and you're considering whether or not you'll enter into the community. Okay? The other is I'm new, and I'm actively entering into the community now, but I'm, that's a new thing for me. Or you're saying, I've actually been here for a long time, but this community is not the community that I remember from even four years back. This community has totally changed in the last couple of years. Pay close attention to that. We are all 100% in the same boat. We are all in the process right now of learning to enter into a new kind of community together. So we're all in this together. There are no old-time CB folks here saying, yep, this is the same old church I've always been a part of. I mean, the walls are probably similar, but, but it's a different life. It's a different group of people. There's nobody who's new to CB here today saying, yeah, this is all really familiar to me. I totally get it. <laughs> you know, we're wondering, how do things work? How does, what is structured? Who's even in charge of anything? We're always learning those kinds of things, yes? So... We're all in the same boat. We're attempting to enter into a new community, and that means we'll be uncomfortable. You think about the picture in, in the text that we've read, and, and you say to yourself, did this all just come easy to them? And the answer for any halfway intelligent person is, absolutely not. <laughs> they didn't just start living that way because it was simple and easy. They lived that way because they believed Jesus. They believed the gospel. This was new. It's an uncomfortable reality. That's only a problem for you if your comfort is your God. If you worship good feelings. In that case, if comfort has become your God, what you worship the most, then entering a new community feels, it, it feels really bad, even sinful. You might say, well, this is unbiblical. This is unchristian. It's not. It's just the wrong God. If you worship God and trust Jesus, it's possible to see that what's happening at CB is the formation of a new kind of Christian community here. It's not new in the sense of it's novel from Christian history. We're a new local expression of a very ancient church life that's been going on for thousands of years. 
We're all sitting around the same stone table at Rivendell, if you will, forming a fellowship of the gospel. We're commissioned to carry the heaviest burden, our own crosses, and to fight orcs and goblins, the forces of evil, to accept one another where we are for our faults and failings included, whether we're elves or dwarves or hobbits, whatever the case may be, Republicans, Democrats, black, white, American, Mexican, Syrian, we're forming a fellowship of different kinds of people to do something eternally amazing. Isn't that what's happening in Acts 2? Aren't these people forming together? And already we see just in these terse verses how the community around them says, whoa. It's almost as though what Jesus prayed for in John 17 is coming to pass in front of our eyes. Father, I ask that they would be one as you and I are one so that the world would know you sent me. They're living this way. Okay, let's go back to verse 42 one last time and clarify this notion of fellowship as best we can. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Again, they're actively choosing. They devoted themselves. To what, though? What is it exactly? Let's be specific. We might say that they devoted themselves to learning the Bible. That'd be a little bit anachronistic. It's not quite that because they didn't have a New Testament and so forth. But like we devote ourselves to learning the Bible, they sat around and listened to the teachings of the apostles and they devoted themselves to learning what the apostles were talking about together in a community, a learning community. All right? They were hanging out with each other. They're reading, they're talking, asking questions. We know that they were eating together. Sounds a little bit trivial. It's not. It's miraculous. This church would radically change if every family or household in here made a commitment to just invite one other family or household over for lunch just once a month, right after church. And Andrew Pratt has been leading us to the all-church meals that happen each month and then through the whole summer. So we're working toward that, but we can all jump in at a deeper level. They're eating together, they're studying together, they're worshiping and praying together on purpose because they want to, not because they're posta, because they actually really want to. We might prefer that Luke would open verse 42 in a more modern mindset. They all busted out their calendars to see if they had any spare time to study the apostles' teaching and to share meals and to pray. He doesn't say that, does he? He says they made a choice. They made a commitment. They devoted themselves, which means they did not say, I'll see if I have time. They said, I'll make time. This matters more than anything else. What matters to you more than deep belonging in the life of God's people? You might notice I skipped right past fellowship, though. Fellowship in your Bibles is a good translation. The Greek word is koinonia, and that's how we always translate it. There's a tricky piece of it, though, and if you have a pen in your Bible open, this is worth putting in the margins. 
The way we read it now oftentimes makes it sound like fellowship is the verb, and it's not. Fellowship is the result of the verb. It's what happens when you do something. So we don't get together to do fellowship. We get together to do something that creates fellowship. Okay? And what are they doing? They're choosing to hold something in common together. Acts 2, 42 through 44 can be exceedingly confusing and even misleading if you, like me, have grown up in a, in a church context or in any way that has caused you to think of fellowship as brief times of casual socializing. And I think that's probably a, a, one of the most common ways we think about fellowship. We're going to get together for some fellowship, by which we mean playing games, having coffee, talking about things, wondering how we'll get home through this crazy snowstorm, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> we, we, we think of fellowship as those sort of momentary, fun, relaxing times. Now, if that's what you think fellowship is, and then you read this passage, you read into it something that's not in it. And what you read into it is they were getting together for casual times of socialization. Oh, we should do that too. Let's build a hall. We'll call it the fellowship hall. You see, but that's not what they were doing. Notice one more thing. When you envision fellowship that way, who do you want to fellowship with? The people you have the most in common with. I don't like getting into conversations with somebody who is on a totally different page than me. And if fellowship is about sitting and having casual conversation, guess who I'm going to gravitate toward? <laughs> People who are more like me. Luke's not talking about that kind of activity at all. That's not fellowship. That's called hanging out and talking. Hanging out and talking is different than fellowship. Verse 42, I said, uses the word koinonia. Verse 44 uses the word koina. Both of these words have their root, have their deep core meaning in the sense of holding something in common, sharing something together, participating in something that the group is participating in. Imagine the fellowship that forms on some of these Olympic teams that we've been watching for the past couple of weeks, right? You can see them sometimes when they're just, they're just in that state of abandon. They're just, you can just tell. Nothing else matters. They have one goal. This team is going for the gold. They're not bickering. They're not fighting. They're helping each other work toward that end. They're bound tightly. They've devoted themselves to each other and to the mission of their team. And as a result of doing that, they have fellowship with one another. They actually have a fellowship that forms. True Christian fellowship is something that happens because you make a choice to change the way that you live so that you can adapt to the community. It's not trying to find the perfect puzzle pieces that already fit together. Peter uses the language of God forming us as spiritual stones to be fitted together as a temple. And he chisels rock the other language is iron sharpening iron. 
God is shaping us to belong to one another, and that takes time and effort. It's difficult. But it's beautiful because within that community, you're being saved. You're being enlivened, brought to life. You've heard me preach many times that God always brings his salvation through people. He always has, from the very beginning up to the end. Jesus is a people too. He brings his salvation through people. Now, focus even more clearly on the facts that he brings salvation through people and specifically the communities of people that human beings form. The covenanted community of Abraham, he says, I will make you the father of a massive people group and you will bless the nations. First, he forms a community around Abraham. The Torah or the law-shaped community of worship and purity in Moses. The kingdom-shaped community of David and Solomon. The prophetically-shaped communities that come as the prophets summon the, 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 is, the community of Israel to become more just. They're shaped as a community. The restored kingdom community of Jesus. The spirit-inspired community of the early churches in the land of Israel. That's what we're looking at now. The communities of faith that formed in Paul's mission, shaped by church leadership and roles and structure. Then there's the communities of faith under Peter, shaped by suffering and persecution. All through the Bible, you see, from the beginning to the end. John's communities, so focused on love. Over and over, wherever you go in the Bible, God does the same thing. He forms a community, and this community does the will of God, which means that they find themselves united to God and participating in his life. And this happens for their own good and for the good of the world around them. Community is a place where God's salvation is happening. The end of our passage, they entered in and were being saved here. Today, here in Central, I think we're a, we're a gospel-constructed community of grace. That's what I want to lead us to, to become so rooted in the gospel that this way of life is not foreign to us, but it's familiar to enter into this kind of life. And right now, I'd like to actually share a few blurbs with you from this week. I asked a few folks to sort of weigh in on a couple of questions. I asked them related to their somewhat recent entrance into a home community or a community group here. I asked them, what was the most challenging piece for you? And what's something that has changed you? Or what is something that has been helpful? And I want to say before I show these slides, I've got five of them to show, but I want to say before I show them that I am not suggesting to you that these community groups or home communities are the, are the end-all answer. They're one small piece of community life at Central Bible. It's one example of how we're trying to actually bring this into our concrete streets of life. But you and I both know that there are many more ways to belong to one another and to hold in common the responsibilities of this ministry, okay? But here's a couple of folks that have, that have been impacted. We'll start with Rudy. Put up the slide, there we go, there's Rudy. He says, I was nervous about the commitment. He's talking about going to a home community once a week. 
The time was an obstacle, but also the fact that I was single, 26 years old, and mostly everyone else in the group is married and has kids. So I wondered, how relatable am I? Will I get along with these people? Looking back on these months, I've felt loved. They are my friends. I look forward to Monday nights because I know it's, safe. it's a safe place. Rudy can't spell very well, <laughs> clearly. Or he texts too much is probably the right answer. I look forward to Monday nights because I know it's safe and I can be transparent and honest where my friends truly care about me. I'm blessed to be a part of it. I like that. And notice he's just been going for three months. Big, I doubt anybody in this room looks at his first couple sentences and says, gosh, I can't even relate to that. You know, we all relate to that. Let's go to the next one, Steve. Here's Lauren. Small groups were just forming when we arrived, so to be in one, we had to start one. <laughs> Terror set in. At the thought of leading a group, I thought, no way, God. You didn't bring me here to be the leader of a small group. No way. But God made the desire for community strong. And then when we were asked to co-lead a group, which was awkward, challenging, and incredibly rewarding, acquaintances became family by sharing our stories, joys, and struggles, having something in common. By giving of our gifts and our talents around the table and in each other's homes, through prayer and discussion, my small community, no, my small group family is a true blessing in my life. We'll go to the next one. There's Isaac. It was hard to commit time to spend with people I didn't know because I'm pretty introverted. The experience has really helped me, making just a few connections in my community group has led me to meet many people at church. Now I play on the worship team. Ultimately, it's helped me with some of the fear of meeting new people. And Isaac means peeps too. We'll go to the next one. My biggest hurdle to overcome was, this is Michael Young. And Michael Young has been in home communities before. He's been at CB for a long time. Long time ago, they were called growth groups. So he's reflecting on both. My biggest hurdle now was to overcome, was my fear of everyone getting to know me too well and seeing all of my flaws. None of us can relate to that. Michael, I'm sorry, bro, you are totally on your own with that. I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. The experience has changed the way that I view others, to see them as God sees them, to love and pray for them. And God has given me more compassion and kindness and tolerance toward what others are going through. That's a, that's a statement of I'm being changed. By, being, by holding something in common with other Christians. He is helping me help others carry their burdens. This, this is one big reason I enjoy community group living. I need encouraging, and I know others do as well. And then we'll go to the next one. Here's Mora. Mora you. It's pronounced like Laura, but with an M. All right, she started hosting a home community, so she had a, a space, and she said, hey, I've got a home, and I have a space. Other people will probably need to lead it, but we can all meet at my, my place. The biggest challenge is relenting control of my expectations and my own desires. Wow, does community start to shape and help to temper what you expect of other people? So much of our disappointment with other people comes from what we expect. We expect them to be way, way better than we are. I'm also learning the beauty and the discipline of hospitality, not just the giving of resources and hosting space, 
but emotional and physical energy spent preparing for each week's gathering, especially when I don't feel like putting in the effort. It's, I feel that way. We, I go to a home community too. Oftentimes, I, I don't want to go. It's Wednesday night, or when do we meet? Thursday nights? I don't even know. <laughs> One of the nights. And, 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 I, and it's coming up, and it's been a long day, and I'm like, oh, gosh, the couch sounds a lot better than talking with people. And then by 9 o'clock at night, I say, my goodness, am I glad I got to hang out with them. New life has come to me. I feel changed because I'm encouraged to open my mind up to the creative will of God. I'm experiencing beauty in the mosaic of my people. We span five generations and represent drastically different walks in life. Notice, that's not a statement of, we all came to the table with a lot in common. I'm finding myself more at peace and finding gratitude in the little and the big things, the boring and the exciting. I'm learning to love the messiness because it allows me to practice grace, which reminds me of the grace that's been given to you and me. What kinds of things do I desire now? For God to show glimpses of how he works to amaze me with what he can do to continue breaking down my rigid mindset so that I can receive his joy alongside the members of my group. That's beautiful. Thanks, Steve. In our passage, verse 45, these believers are selling their stuff and helping people if they have real need. There are people in this community who have real need. You look up at our 33-foot-high ceilings here, and, and they're leaking again. We have need. Look down at the carpet. You might think we have. I don't know if you think we have need or not. Maybe we do. Will you devote yourself to this community to take responsibility for this common worship space together? Can we together as a team help to renovate it and bring new life to it so that it blesses the entire east side of Portland for the next five decades. It was built in 57. Will we carry it on? Can we join together and say, this is our project. This is our time. God gave us this space. How will we use it together? In verse 46, they're meeting together continuously in order to worship together. Will you see your attendance at church as an act of devotion to this community? rather than something for you to get something out of. It's a different way of looking at church participation. I come on Sunday morning because I'm devoted to the people. God gave me spiritual gifts to bless the people. The reason I go is to become alive in Jesus by giving of myself to others. That's a radically different concept of, I don't know if it's doing it for me. You know, it's a very different and very gospel-oriented perspective. In the second half of that same verse, they're sharing food in their homes and eating together with glad and sincere hearts, praising and enjoying the favor of everyone in their midst. You can pull a little bit of biblical promise out of this. Do you currently favor everybody in this church? Do you love all of the believers here and find yourself filled with glad-hearted sense of peace and well-being, connected in love with the others in this room and with the Savior. John, in his first epistle, warns us, don't think that you love God if you don't love his people. 
You're, you're telling yourself some fibs right there and others. If you don't say that, if you say, yeah, I don't really favor everybody in this room, I want to I encourage you to hear the Holy Spirit's gentle whisper this morning through this passage. God is calling this community to cut the individualistic nonsense that harms us deeply and start living real life together. To truly look at the well-being of this church as our common responsibility that we hold together as one. We need to band together. We need to team up to hold one another closely as family and as a team. I believe deeply that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave. I believe that. I believe just as strongly that God is calling us to hold this specific church community in common, to choose to devote ourselves to it, this people and this mission. And I believe that we will experience the same glad-hearted love for one another when we do. The complaining will end. The financial tensions will relax. And the power of the mission, the witness of Central Bible Church to Portland in the midst of our neighbors will be profoundly expanded. It'll be brighter than ever. Jesus gave us his gospel. We claim to believe it. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Now, now, will we participate with him and allow his gospel to take root in our souls? Allow him to make us, us who are not yet a people. We're not there yet. We're new together. We're learning to belong together. We're not yet a people. Will we allow God through his spirit to make us who are not yet a people into a people, a people who are chasing after the life of Jesus with everything that we have together as one? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, enter into the deepest place of our being this morning. We are open to you there's not one man and not one woman in this room that would say to you, we know everything perfectly and we've figured everything out. We do sit here saying we need your guidance and we need your help. Help us to become a people that steps out of the fray of the everyday normal gospel of the world and truly believes in your gospel. It's a great, great gift to us. And it's changing us, and we're so thankful for that already. We know you've begun a great work in each of us, and we trust that you will carry it through to completion. We want to participate with you. We want to be devoted to you and to one another. Amen.